Welcome back to Qualified-ish, the bi-weekly podcast that talks all about movies and TV shows created by qualified creators, but hosted by an unqualified lover of film. This episode is about The Breakfast Club. Why is it a classic? Today, I am joined by Lisa Thornton. Hi, I'm Lisa. Hi, Kira. Hello. I am a 52-year-old mom who is solidly Gen X and a fan of The Breakfast Club since it premiered in February 1985. I have seen this movie over 50 times in whole or in part, and I feel like I've been waiting my entire life for someone to ask me what I think about The Breakfast Club. Yeah, so last time um, I recorded with Kira and Kira's dad, and Lisa was like, well, I want, I want an episode. And I was like, okay, what would it be on? And she was like, The Breakfast Club. And I was like, okay, well, I'll keep that in mind for if I bring, up, bring back the podcast and here we are. I'm so excited. I'm so happy that we're doing this. And right before um, we decided to record, we decided to rewatch the movie. And so that was also an experience because we'll talk more about why this means so much to Lisa. But um, it's just fun to watch it with someone who cares so much about the film. So... So yay, this episode is finally happening. It's been a long time coming. Like two or three years in the making. Um, Very exciting. So I'm going to start with the first three questions that I ask every person, and then we're going to get into our topic. Um, Okay, so the first one is, what is your favorite TV show? So recently, my most favorite TV show is Ted Lasso, and I was late to the game watching it, um, but I love the kindness and humanity that it exemplifies. And before that, Friends, obviously, was a huge Friends fan. It was appointment television on NBC in the 90s, watched it in real time. We would, like, set the VCR if we weren't going to be home on a Thursday. But going back to when I was a kid, it was MASH. And I watched it in reruns over and over and over again. And I think the reason I like all those shows is they're ensembles. You feel like you know the characters and they're like friends and family. So, And I think as Gen X, we were raised by the TV. We spent a lot of time alone, latchkey kids. And so the people on TV were our friends. Love it. And um, what about your favorite movie? Um, my favorite movie currently is obviously uh, The Breakfast Club, but um, my favorite movie right now is The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. I absolutely love that movie. It's like a fantasy fairy tale, and the CGI, the music, the people in it, they're all characters, and every time I watch it, I want to dust off my passport and mm. go somewhere. It's a great adventure. So if I ever ran into uh, Ben Stiller, I would definitely tell him <laughs> how much I love Zoolander and obviously Dodgeball, but I feel like um, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty was a passion project for him, and wow. it's fantastical. I just love it. How many times have you seen that? I saw it. Uh, on a movie premiere night where you sort of won tickets and you didn't know what you were going to see and there'd been no um, previews about it. So I walked in totally blind and it was just amazing. It was just so lovely right from the opening credits and how they used um, the titles. It was, I don't know, it was just really interesting. The visuals were interesting. The story was interesting. Um, And now we've purchased it. So it's sort of one of those (laughs) movies that I'm feeling funky. I watched that movie. It's one one of a couple that I watch as therapy. It's really comforting. That one's a good one. It is comforting. And it's funny. I just said to James recently that sometimes when you see a movie that has sort of a catch ending to it, you don't really want to rewatch it because you know what happens. But in a way, it's actually quite therapeutic to watch and know everything's going to be okay and everything resolves and you're rooting for Walter and yeah. Yeah. Love it. Um, and if you created, if you, sorry, if you wish you created one film or TV series, which would it be? Yesterday. 
the, the movie yesterday. Really? Yeah, I love that one as well for a similar reason. It's lovely. And that one also is, it's just, it's such a lovely story with such a creative, I feel like a lot of movies are recreations of other things or variations of stuff. But yesterday was a really creative concept. And if you haven't seen it, it's about an aspiring musician who is not doing very well. And one day there's a worldwide blackout that happens for a couple of minutes. And when he wakes up, he realizes he's the only person on earth who remembers the Beatles. And so he starts, quote unquote, writing the Beatles songs. And he feels like a hack, but he's also having great success for the first time. And there's just a lovely um, moment at the end, sort of a what if moment. If things had gone differently for the Beatles, if the world had been different. And every time I watch it, it sort of catches in my throat. And it's just, it's pretty. And, you know, it's just a love of music. And the characters are fantastic. And it's, it's, it's just a really pretty thought. Yeah, I need to I need to watch that. I haven't seen it. Um, I you've watched, not seen it at all. No, is that that's like a newer one, right? Like, yeah, in the last couple of years. Couple but of years. you that should be your homework for tonight. Yeah, I need to watch it. Yeah. Um, I really liked like the the huge like the long. I think it's called Get Back, the one that came out on Hulu. Yes, that was a different one, so but good. it's very different. But yeah, like, I I I love the Beatles. Is the point? Um. Okay, so now we're gonna get into our topic, the Breakfast Club. Um, and so, Lisa, do you want to explain why are we talking about The Breakfast Club today? Well, why are we talking about The Breakfast Club? It's it's many, many years old, but it still resonates, I think. Uh, I've just found it recently that high school students are actually doing it as a play now. And when you watch it, it watches oh. like a play. Um, one of the questions that you had sort of prompted was, does it still resonate with today's kids or with today's students? And I think it does. Some of the language has changed. Uh, there's definitely some problematic um, themes if you were watching it through today's lens. But uh, the the themes remain the same. Friendship, wanting to be seen, wanting to be a part of things, and sort of a general distrust of adults, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so for those who haven't seen the movie, what is it about? How would you describe it? It is takes place in one day in a high school library. Five very, very different students are on detention, and they spend the day in detention in the library. And over the course of the day, the reasons that they're there and their truths come to be, and they sort of reveal themselves and reveal who they truly are by spending time together and talking. It all takes place sitting in a library talking. Yeah, it's really impressive. I mean, doing a movie in one location, it can be really like boring you would think it's boring like why are they when you're watching it when i heard that i thought yeah it does it does watch like a play there there's some movement in the movie but it really could take and take place entirely in the library um but the the characters uh are the same characters that you see in high schools now i mean it's it's changed a little bit but the the type of people they are you can identify those characters you either feel like you're one of them or you feel like you definitely know them I mean there's a Claire in every high school even now totally and so I guess riffing on that why is this a classic like why do you think um this movie is a classic and what does being a classic movie mean so I think a classic is something that's infinitely rewatchable and identifiable in pop culture uh, and there's lines in it, obviously, you just sat and watched. I, I warned Kira ahead of time as we watched it <laughs> that it's somewhat annoying to watch The Breakfast Club with me because I know so many of the lines. Um, it's sort of like I thought of um, It's a Wonderful Life. Everybody knows the line. Teacher, When teacher says when you hear a bell ring, an angel gets its wings, yeah. you can see that part of the movie because it's a classic and you've seen it over and over again. I think The Breakfast Club is like that. If you've seen it, a lot of the the lines from the movie, the music from the movie, it's it 
it's still something you that resonates now, but it's also something that if you've seen it even once, uh, you remember it. And it is a movie, I think, a classic is something that you can rewatch over and over again. And I clearly have done that. So Yeah, I think also part of that, too, is the influence it has on other media. Yes. Um, and so Lisa and I were talking about, like, during the movie, I was talking about how before I watched The Breakfast Club, I saw the episode on Victoria's, which Victoria's is a Nickelodeon show. And when I was like, when did it come out? Maybe like 12, like when Victoria's yeah. came out, like I watched it and I was like, I don't remember, like, I don't know what this is. It's a, it's a really, um, random episode. Not every Victoria's episode looks like that. One. No, it's very clearly a parody or a mel- like something like, and I was like, Oh, I don't know. Um, but like now today, even people, people my age will be like, Oh, like I love that one Victoria's episode. I was like, oh, like the Breakfast Club one. And they're like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, oh, it's based off of a very famous like movie. And they still haven't seen it. And I, you know. I actually crazy. remember the day my Kira uh, was watching Victorious on the couch and I was making dinner as the mom, the real mom. And I remember taking a step back and going, oh my goodness, they're actually doing the Breakfast Club and thinking, oh, wow, that is a crossover in pop culture. But I also felt super old because now I'm the mom in this situation. But yeah, it's yeah. a cool thing though. It's very cool that like people, it's just like inter- interpolation, you know, like where people, where people take and they like reuse the topic, but it's kind of, it's new. And I think like one of the versions that I like more and like this realm um, of like film where it's like angsty teenager or like high school stereotypes i love heathers yes like heathers is this for me yes not i have not rewatched heathers as many times but it was the same genre same time same feelings and it it was also rewatchable in a very similar way yes and so there's just something that's like it's funny in in its own ways i feel like the breakfast club is funny but it's also very serious it is serious there's big serious topics in there yeah i think that that's what makes it so um, that's what makes it a classic in some ways. I well, think. and I think actually John Hughes, that's part of why he resonated so much with teens at the time, uh, is that he had, he understood their voice, but he also gave weight to their voice as well. A lot of times kids are, you know, treated like their voice or their, their thoughts and ideas don't matter. And he didn't, it, it wasn't a parody of kids. It was actually, mm-hmm. they had serious things that they were thinking about and dealing with. And I was 14 when I watched it. The characters in the movie were 15, 16, but I mean, Parents and teachers were to be distrusted, and Gen X was a salty group, right? I mean, they were very distrusting of adults. We lived very much in fear of nuclear war at the time, and it was heavy stuff that we were dealing with. And uh, John Hughes really gave weight to those voices, and it didn't sound artificial. It wasn't like an adult writing how kids would talk. It really was how kids talked. And apparently he also let them riff, and um, he let them take many takes and use a lot of their own ideas while they were filming. And if it was good, he let it stay in the movie. Right. And do you remember the first time you watched it? And like, um... Oh, yeah. I remember. It was, I was uh, on winter break in the February of 1985, and it was playing at just a few theaters, and I took two buses and a metro into downtown Montreal in the cold. And I remember that scene when the glass shatters at the beginning, and the whole audience was full, and it was just like something we had not seen before. And then as time rolled on, John Hughes put out a lot of movies, but a lot of them were as identifiable but more lighthearted like uh pretty in pink and obviously uh, ferris bueller's day off but this was more serious it definitely had a more serious tone but as you watched it you felt like you were one of the characters or a piece of many of the characters 
and you felt like you knew the characters. They were very, uh, very close to what we were all dealing with. And I've actually heard, too, that a lot of the actors had gotten letters and spoken to people after that from other countries. It wasn't just an American thing. I went to school in Canada. But they said, you know, you would think that high schools in other countries would have different feels. And they said everybody that they spoke to would say, oh, yeah, no, I definitely identify with the characters. I knew somebody like that or I dated someone like that or I felt like that. So John, John Hughes definitely nailed it on that one. And how do you feel like it? affected you after you first watched it? Well, I immediately in the next couple of weeks after I saw it with very little money because I was 14, so it was babysitting money, I went and saw it two more times in the theater Mm. um, and dragged friends along. And then over time, as it came out on VHS, I watched it on VHS repeatedly and then on TVD and then streaming and then on cable TV if I was folding laundry and over and over again. So it just feels like puts you back to a place in time with people that you know. And uh, now watching it yeah, I, with perspective as an adult, I still identify with those characters. And when I'm watching it, I still feel like I'm that age. But now I'm actually closer to, you know, Brian's mom's age. I'm more closely identified with the mom sitting in the car than actually the kids in the library. And on that note, like, um, you've seen it like 50 plus times. Yeah. And so how has your perspective changed over the years and over the times that you've seen it? Um, my perspective has changed. I think in watching it, I felt so immersed in it when I first saw it. And over time, just the familiarity of it, I I heard that during lockdown, people were rewatching things like Friends in the Office over and over again. And it was to sort of assuage the the stress of the pandemic and lockdown. People didn't know what was happening, what was going to happen. We felt stressed about it. And so there was a familiarity in rereading books and rewatching shows and movies that you knew would end up okay. And so even though the topics were heavy, it feels like going back to a place in time when things didn't feel safe at the time, but now it's like with perspective, you know that everything's going to be okay. And so it's like going home again. That's Mm -hmm. how it feels when I watch it. Yeah. And so how do you think over time this movie has aged? You know, rewatching it, I kind of, I dug a little bit into some of the things people find problematic. Um, Molly Ringwald was 16 when she filmed it and Judd Nelson was 24. So looking at it through a 2023 lens, that probably wouldn't happen now because of their age difference and sort of the sexual connotation. Certainly there's some language. So it's very hard to look at it from a 2020s lens. But in the 80s, those were words and things that happened and were said without a second thought. So it's a little bit like looking at things in history. There's things that are problematic in history. And so some of the words that were used, definitely we would not be okay with now. We are not okay with now. But it really was what it was. And, you know, we deal with kids your age, uh, as you were going through high school, you started to deal with you know, online bullying, but real bullying in real life in the 80s was no messing around. It's it's really what made a Gen X tough. There was nobody to rescue us. There was no anti-bullying campaigns. We were bullied by other kids. We were bullied by our parents. We were bullied by teachers. The scene with uh, the principal, stuff like that really happened in high school in the 80s. It just did. Yeah. People got away with it. And so the thing that she's referring to is like in the film, there's a part where the the teacher is kind of almost like harassing yeah. John. Is that yeah. His name? John. Um, and she was like telling me like this is real. Like it's not just like Oh no, I knew teachers. Yeah. No, I knew teachers in my school or in schools in my district that you know, vaguely got in trouble for verbally assaulting or in some cases getting into altercations with kids that would get in their face. And I'm sure some teachers lost jobs, but stuff that would just never happen now. I mean, it totally. would just would not happen. Yeah. And so, do you relate to any of the characters in the movie or like 
a good question too is like when you first watched it did you see yourself in one of them and like how does that how has that changed or yeah so in reading the descriptions I mean I know the characters like their friends but in reading the descriptions of the characters I feel like a little part of me was um like Brian I was a really good student in high school Uh, a little bit like Andy I like to have fun but I was pretty serious into activities and a little bit less into sports um, I definitely felt a little bit like Allison. Sometimes I felt a little invisible and certainly um, my parents had a lot of stuff going on at that time. So I think I kind of, as long as I was doing well in school and I wasn't getting into trouble, I was a little bit invisible in my family. And uh, I always wanted to be like Claire and there were the popular girls like Claire. I definitely didn't really run with that crowd, but you kind of always wanted to wear the cool clothes and be the pretty girl in school. And, and my first serious boyfriend was definitely John Bender. I mean, he was, he looked like him. He dressed like him. He certainly had problematic behaviors like John Bender. So it was the whole, the whole package. Yeah. And one of my favorite parts um, at rewatching it just now was when they're, when they're running through the hall, like, and they're all trying to avoid the teacher and there's like a shot of just their feet. Yeah. It's like one of my favorite shots because it's like, you can see, like you can know a lot from a person by how they dress, sure. Especially how like they dress their like their shoes, that kind of thing. And so, I love that because it's like also the choice of like who's walking first and who's walking back. I think, I think it's genius. Like, and I think that those details really, they're so important in this movie. And they well, and there's a lot about you know as much as the, it's the tension between all the characters, yeah. a lot of push and pull and and getting in each other's faces. But the one thing that's consistent and that definitely resonates as a Gen X was no matter what strife they had going on between themselves in the library, their distrust and disdain of adults, the the teachers, the, their parents is definitely an overall theme. That was what it was. And, and I think if you talk to any Gen X who's now in their 50s, um, most of us heard our parents and the voices of teachers in our lives as like the teachers in Charlie Brown, sort of that wah, wah, wah. That yeah. was very much how we felt about... Um, adults in our lives so that that definitely was very real that's definitely real one of my favorite parts um that i thought was weird the first time i watched was allison in general yeah everyone you're supposed to think that she's weird based on like how she dresses and um just how other characters perceive her and how they how they treat her but what i find to be funny is that i think that she's the most like authentic yes like she's very authentic and she's just very real and so the part, especially when they're all sitting on the floor and she's like, well, like it's, you're, it's unavoidable. You're going to be like your parents. It's yeah. Probably like one of the truest statements in the whole movie. Um, and I think that really riffs on like the whole idea in the film about how adults treat, treat kids, Correct. especially like teachers and, and kids. And so, um, there's just a lot, there's a lot of themes in the movie. So I'm wondering what you think about what is, what is the movie about? Ah, that's such a good question. I really think it's about how not only kids relate to each other, but how they relate to the adults in their lives. Um, but kind of how we relate to each other in society as well, you know? And it's interesting. I, I, this, just to be very clear, a lot of remakes are happening. They should never remake The Breakfast Club. Absolutely, period. Yeah. But I would actually love to see if John Hughes was making the movie from scratch right now, how he would cast it, right? Things have changed. At the time, it was not common for kids to be out if they were sexually non, you know, if they were not cis. We definitely knew kids that were gay or bisexual, but they were often bullied and it was not talked about. So 
there was, you know, at a school there was there was criticism about this movie at the time, even that it was a, it was a suburban Chicago high school and all the kids were white, mm-hmm. which obviously in most places now there's tons of kids from diverse backgrounds. So it would be curious to see how John Hughes would cast the film now. Mm-hmm. Um, I do not want any director to take that on and redo it. They need to leave it alone and not remake it. But um, I do think it's sort of a microcosm of how we relate to people. School is a microcosm of real life, right? I mean, there's there's weird people that you work with or that are in your families. There's people that follow the straight and narrow. There's people that are yeah. more concerned about how, about, you know, their appearance over substance. And so those characters, while they're not fully formed as humans because they're teenagers in the movie, um, yeah, they probably are destined to grow up and be kind of along the grayscale of who their parents are. And you get glimpses of the parents in the cars, but based on the cars that they're driving, sort of how they interact with their kids, you can see where the kids are going, right? They're probably, yeah. it would have to, it would require a great change and a decision to be different than their parents. You can see it probably most clearly with Brian and with Claire, mm-hmm. right? They're going to probably end up a lot like For their sure. parents. I like to think since Allison's I look at Allison like she she sort of it acts strangely, I think, for attention because she feels so invisible. But I really do think she is the most authentically herself. Mm-hmm. And the part I think that resonated with me when I first saw it is I and I'm still like that. I like who I like. I'm not easily impressed by things or or money or if I if I like you, I like you. And if I don't like you, I don't like you. It's and I feel like Allison's kind of that way. She even says at some point, you know, like, I don't think the friends I would have would mind you know she she would stay friends with them on Monday after the detentions over because she liked them and they were kind to her and they saw her you know she she didn't feel invisible with them Mm -hmm. and that's that's one of the most striking scenes for me is the one between her and Andy when Andy sees that you know I think he's worried that she's being abused or something serious is going on and they don't say very much in that scene but he sees how lost and invisible she is right no and I think it's funny that you say that um, Brian and Claire are the ones who are going to end up most like their parents because I think that brings it to like another kind of like um, it's like an undertone in the film of like privilege. Yes. Because Claire and Brian are so clearly like there's a lot of structure in their life. There's a lot of money, obviously. Well, and Andy as well. Andy as well, but I feel like. There is more of a self-awareness with Andy that yes. that's, like, not in Brian and Claire. And so the reason I'm bringing this up is because the scene where they, they have their lunch, I feel like, tells so much about yes where, where their stance is, obviously. But also, if they have the structure and they don't have much self-awareness, maybe like Andy does, where I feel like Andy... That's why I think Andy is so... Um, like, uh, he's probably the most balanced out of everyone, in my opinion. Um, but... I think that that structure that's given with their privilege that Claire and Brian has obviously lends themselves to be more like their parents because they kind of, I feel like they don't have the, the gut at least at this point in their life to be like, oh, my parents maybe are like stuck up or something and therefore I am stuck up and like, I need to change that about myself. I feel like Andy, he, he sees himself in Allison a little bit, which Definitely. I think is, is really interesting because it's like he doesn't look like that at all. He doesn't act like that, but I think that he has like some more emotional like self awareness. That- well, and I don't. I, I feel like he very clearly is seen. He doesn't feel as invisible, yeah. but it's almost the other side where he feels like a passenger in his own ride. Yeah, you know, yeah. like he doesn't. He very clearly says his dad and his coach see a lot of potential in him, and they clearly like his dad's license plate even says um, Ohio State on it. So it's very clear what what Andy's path is 
and he is sort of a rule follower and he's doing what they're asking where he could rebel against it but he even says I wish my knee would go out so that I wouldn't have to go down this path but it's a foregone conclusion that he's going to go to Ohio State or some big school and he's going to wrestle maybe on a scholarship and that's what's expected of him and he is actually a follower you can see a couple of times with the group he follows along with what they're doing like when they go to smoke up in the library he sort of throws his arms up like well I might as well just go so he is a follower and he listens to what other and Allison even says at some point his biggest issue is he can't think for himself right but he definitely sees Allison and the pain that she's in that she's not seen and he also I think feels lost and not seen although he is under a microscope so it's he's an interesting character in that way he is and um I think also what's interesting about what you said earlier is if they were to redo it today which I they should not they shouldn't for the record, if you're listening, Christopher please, Nolan... Please do not. Or somebody. Um, I fear that it's going to happen because there are so many remakes happening within the like last five, ten years. It's, it's really annoying and unoriginal and I don't like it. But anyways, tangent. Um, but it would be interesting to see how they would cast it. I'd love to see right. how they would cast it with diverse backgrounds and you know, kids that are gay or bisexual, very much what's representative of Gen yeah, Y, right? right? It would be interesting to see them cast it, but let's not. Yeah, but what I was thinking about is if it were to happen today, I think it will totally lack, like, first of all, it will lack a lot of things because the original's already made. But in terms of the charm that this movie has, I think it will be lost in the fact that it's a remake, but also in the fact that there's so much technology that wouldn't even prompt a movie like this right now. Right. The kids would be on their phones and yeah, that would be the end of the it. movie. There's no, there's no substance. Correct. Okay, that's it. And so I think that that's what makes it also a classic is like, you know, sometimes people, um, they romanticize like this era yes. of like the eighties, the seventies, eighties and part of the nineties. We were feral. Like I, yeah. I've, I've watched, um, stranger things with my family yes. And obviously the monster's not real, but the kids being unattended and riding around on their bikes all day and yeah. the adults didn't know where they were, that was real. I mean, yeah. that was legit. They nobody, nobody knew what we were up to. They didn't know what we were doing. I, I don't know that they didn't care, but they was this recently came came out again. There used to be a, a public service announcement that would come on during the evening news between ten and eleven, and it was, It's ten o'clock, do you know where your kids are? And and someone laughed and said the moms, they forgot they had kids until 10 o'clock at night. And that's how they kept their houses clean. So their kids were out riding around on their bikes and visiting with friends. And that was real. That yeah. was, yeah, yeah. you know, in a way it was, it was, you know, also kids ended up going missing and they'd end up on the back of milk cartons because they were kidnapped. So we were not attended. And I think what happened was the backlash to that was it caused a whole generation of Gen X parents to be overly protective of mm-hmm. Gen Y. But the DNA of Gen X, what you see in Stranger Things, what you see in The Breakfast Club, a lot of that angst and distrust of adults and of institutions has been transmitted into the genetic code of Gen Y. And what I love about that is you guys are salty and smart, but you question authority outwardly. Right. And you're much broader in your inclusion of people. And bullying certainly still exists. And I'd say a lot of it happens online rather than in person. But um a lot of the themes are still there, but I feel like all the stuff that pissed off Gen X and we kind of went invisible has gone into Gen Y and you guys are being seen. And I think watching, certainly during the last election, it feels like the boomers who would be the principal in this case of that movie, that's that generation now, they are vastly underestimating how much of that 
anger and angst and and all those big feelings that those kids were having has been transmitted into the parenting of mm-hmm. your generation and your generation will change things because of that i believe i really right. believe right and you definitely are not an invisible generation and you will not you're out there protesting and doing big things and so you're taking the things that we felt passionate about and angry about and salty about and sarcastic about and you guys have internalized it and you're doing something about it yeah. so i think we were more i don't know that we were passive but i think we felt helpless to do things very much the way andy is and the way allison feels and those were our feelings. We felt helpless to change things or to do anything about it. But your generation does not. Yeah, our generation, like, they don't take shit. Exactly. And I think it's, like, the control that we feel um, that we have now because of, like, how we how we are acting on social media. Like, we have this control that people didn't have before. And Correct. And now there are issues coming And you're up. connected in a way yeah. that we were not connected, yeah. right? So ironically, yeah. if the Breakfast Club was happening today, they would all be sitting on their phones and they'd be connected to people outside of that room and right. no friendships would likely be formed that day. Maybe you guys would end up following each other on Instagram after the day. But um, that, those conversations would not have happened. But so you, as, as much as you're connected to people outside of your realm, you're less connected face-to-face. So, right. yeah. And so you brought up earlier, like... Um like, the parental pressure that is in the movie, um, and there's also, like, bullying, and, um, and social expectations that influence the characters and affect them. Which one of these, so parental pressure, bullying, and social expectations, which one of those hit home for you, I think why? the parental expectations, for sure, um, I was an only child, I am an only child, and the expectation was to do well in school and stay out of trouble, which I did. Um, I was a student leader. I was on student council. I played basketball, not very competitively. I was a good student. I was a real mix of probably Andy and Brian. Um, but bullying was out there. I remember being bullied like at a bus station by a girl from another school and you were really afraid you'd get beaten up. It wasn't just words. I mean, we, and there was nobody coming to our rescue. There was no anti-bullying campaigns. That was real as well. So to a lesser extent, bullying. And what was the other one? There was parental expectations. Social expectations and parental pressure. Yeah, social expectations. I grew up in a school where I was very middle working class and there was kids that were like Claire and, you know, they had nicer clothes and they, you know, we did not get cars the way kids in the U.S. get cars, but some of those kids had cars or they had access to nice cars and they got to go on nice trips and have beautiful sweet 16 parties at fancy hotels. And the sushi thing. And yeah, so watching the movie, I just told Kira, I had literally never heard of or seen anyone eat sushi until I watched this movie. And so that seemed so fancy and rich to me when I first saw it. Now, obviously... I mean, my Kira asked for sushi from Whole Foods for her 15th birthday for her lunch at school, right? So it's, some things have just become more mainstream. But um, all of those things really existed. For me, though, I think the parental pressure... And it's funny because the parental pressure now for your generation is actually a lot harder and more overt, right? Parents are expecting higher grades, higher achievement. It's become the norm to have those things, to even have a chance of getting into college. And you feel like you need to do that so that you can move on and have a better life. So it is a lot um, more overt with parents now. But the quiet message was, be a good kid, stay on the straight and narrow, do well in school. And and yet I was the first one in my family to go to university. So it wasn't Mm -hmm. like my parents had gone to college, but that was the expectation. Whether it was really discussed or not, that was definitely the expectation. Right. And again, it's the same thing with like the advancement of everything that's happening now. Like if, if... Mothers in the 80s had Life 360. Yeah. Things right. would be the same so, there right exactly. now. So, like, if any parent, you know, wants to make sure their kid's safe. And so now I think that all of this exposure for all the parents and all the kids, um, 
with like all these apps is like it's safety but it's also like it's at what no I really believe it's at what cost right so the fact that we were feral and driving around unattended um we it made us hardy you know we really we were survivors and as much as there's apps and stuff to track kids now I think it's actually it's contributed to the anxiety that a lot of people in your generation feel actually because you're constantly being monitored and watched and you can check your grades online your parents are checking they want to know where you are and they can track you and that's become the norm for your generation people somebody knows where you are at all time and while you're probably not going to go missing and end up on a on a milk carton there's not as much space to grow and i think the pandemic exacerbated that for oh, yeah. kids as well right they couldn't even leave the house never mind just go out for a bike ride in the neighborhood or mm-hmm. disappear to their friend's house so that that kind of overconsumption of monitoring is not healthy for people's mental well-being we probably should have been monitored more in the 80s but i mean i was riding two city buses to school when i was 11 years old wow. i mean that would not happen here now no definitely not yeah um, and so in the movie, is there any particular quote, scene, interaction that you always feel like has an impact on you? Yeah, definitely. And in, in, in rewatching it, it reminded me the scene with Allison and Andy, very, uh, very few words are said. The dialogue's very minimal. Mm-hmm. All the acting happens in their face and with Andy nodding and with Allison being on the verge of tears. And so much is said without being said. And when Andy asks Allison, you know, is it bad? And kind of pauses and she nods and he says, your parents? And she said, yeah. And he says, what did they do to you? And the emphasis is on the you because the implication is he understands because his parents have done stuff to him as well. So the reason he can see what's going on with her is he can see it like a mirror in himself. So, I I mean, that was always an impactful scene, but in rewatching it, it's very, very subtle and very well acted and very few words. So it's, it's quite artistically done, actually. Yeah. I think what stood out to me this time, this watch at least, was um, like John talks like 90% of the first half of the movie. Like, and Allison says nothing. And Allison says nothing. Everyone else like um, is trying to just be stoic and just get through the day. And John's talking and then it turns into like the second act of the movie, maybe like halfway through where they're all sitting on the floor in like a different location. And John basically doesn't say anything. And everyone else is talking around around him and they're talking about they're pretty much like psychoanalyzing each other. Correct. And I that's like it's like a group therapy that's session. Like what stood out to me is that therapy session. It was so impactful in the way that like in the beginning of the movie, we see their stereotypes so clearly and we see it throughout the movie. But it's not until that point where we see Yes, there are these stereotypes, there are these social expectations, but really everyone here is the same. Yeah. And that's the whole point of the movie is like there are different things in everyone's lives that we don't know about. You know, like Claire could be walking down the street. She looks perfect, whatever. Her parents obviously have money, but she also has a lot of internal baggage. And I think that that scene does that stereotype so well, like in in terms of like movie stereotypes, like we've seen it a million times throughout throughout like film history of there's a stereotype oh, this person's shy, oh, this person is rich or whatever. And, oh, well, like, they, they, there's so much more to them. I feel like this does it so well because of that, because of how they use John in the movie, which John is, like, the most important character because he, like, breaks the ice. Um, and then later how he kind of, like, shuts off and lets everyone kind of yeah. have their own time, I think is really interesting. Well, I wonder if he... I don't know that he lets people have their own time. I think once the ice is broken the the surface is cracked and they all start to it's like they all want to be seen they all want to share their story yeah. 
but ironically, they probably in their own social groups cannot, you yeah. know, but it's almost sometimes easier to talk to stranger the way you would talk to a bartender, right? Or right. you can share things sometimes with a stranger that you don't share with people that are as close to you. And, yeah. and partially because they feel like they're not going to see each other or interact again afterwards. It's sort of a one day I'm sharing with these strangers and I may never see them again. So right. if they judge me or they don't like me, it's fine. Right. And, and, the, and the talk of like on Monday, like what happens on Monday? Yeah. So I didn't even realize as we were, you know, getting ready to revisit this, I actually went down a rabbit hole and there's all these discussion groups about what happens on Monday. And I don't know that I ever thought about it deeply, but I always kind of imagined that, you know, when you have that kind of situation where you bond with people like maybe you're at a bachelorette party or you're at a birthday party or you have a class with somebody or a seminar something where it's short term but you make you know like a light acquaintanceship or a friendship with somebody that you may not see again if you ran into them you might nod at them or say hi or whatever and I kind of imagine that on Monday they might see each other in the hallway and recognize each other more and maybe like smile and nod Mm -hmm. but I had never any had any delusions that they would hang out I kind of thought maybe Andy and Allison might start chatting on the phone because that's what we used to do used to have to actually pick up a phone that was attached to the wall and call and you know I think they made a connection and so maybe they would be friends and it looks like you know Andy and Claire move in similar circles so they Mm -hmm. probably would see each other but I think the rest of them would probably nod and pass each other in the hallway and I think that was it I think it really was the beauty of this whole story was it was just the one day right yeah weird circumstance they all end up in the same room for eight or nine hours and bear their souls and are seen it's it's um I didn't really realize how uh that question so what happens on Monday was such a big deal for like yeah. the fan base um but definitely like now I realize well what do you think happens on well, Monday I I think they all ignore each other yeah I don't think like, there's seriously. it's not a big happy ending thing right it's not like if you've ever been to high that's the thing if you've ever been to high school it's very hard to change seats it's hard to yeah. change social groups right and there's social movement that happens during high school which is normal that's a normal thing you have friends from elementary or middle school that you don't talk to anymore because you're into different things or you get a serious boyfriend and then you kind of lose your girlfriends or all kinds of social changes happen um or you move or but like the idea of moving to a new high school in the middle of high school is terrifying right Mm -hmm. because people already have their groups and so that's what's happened right i mean allison maybe allison ends up going out on a few dates with andy takes her to a movie or she goes to watch him wrestle but maybe she's too weird to bring home i don't know yeah and i think um what differentiates like this situation from you know having a class with someone and what happens after the class i think is they just like told their whole life story to each other so there's like you you carry that with you like um every character is going to carry that with them and I think like we get like they get so I think that they get so caught up in what's happening in detention and I think later like hypothetically like what happens on Monday is like is like they take their boyfriend girlfriend you know like John takes Claire and Brian takes um not Brian Andy takes uh, Allison. Allison and I feel like it's going to like that feeling of like, oh, it feels like we're the, we're on top of the world. Like we're the only people here. And we the reality sets in the That's moment it. they walk back yeah. out and they, cause, and I think John Hughes framed the movie that way. He starts it off with them being dropped out of their family cars. And even, yes. you know, John Bender has no relationship with his parents and he's the only one who doesn't get dropped by a parent, right? He walks yeah. into detention and that's how the movie ends. I mean, it's like a bookend. It closes and that's the end right. of the right. reality back and... You know, John walks away with a diamond earring as a reminder of the day. And that's the end of that. Right. And so what is it about this movie that still today you're like, this is amazing. Like, I love this. 
it's a combination of things. And I think it's also why I like Walter Mitty and why I like yesterday. It's the, it's the music, right? Uh, the, none of the songs in the breakfast club on their own are so life altering, but John Hughes had a magical way of inserting music into the right spot in movies. And the characters are so identifiable and the dialogue is so real that because of the nature of it being such a classic and so rewatchable, it feels like every time I sit down, no matter what point I turn on the mus- the movie, I still feel a sense of sitting down with friends. You know, I still yeah. it, and and it's also puts me back to a time, not and that was not a great necessarily a great time as a teenager. I was fourteen. I was going through my own stuff, but it felt like you were understood and seen. So I think it goes back to Allison feeling invisible. I think I felt a little bit invisible and sitting down in a dark theater with a bucket of popcorn and watching it and seeing myself up there and people I knew, um, it felt like we were seen and understood. And yeah. so I still feel that way when I watch it. But it's it really is funny because when I watch it, I still see myself as that age and stage. But when I thought about it, the teacher is actually a boomer and, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the kids are now in their fifties and they have kids that are in their twenties. Right. So right. they all grew up and went off and did whatever they did. Maybe John Bender ended up in jail or got a shitty job because he probably finished, maybe he finished high school. Maybe he didn't. And Brian probably went to university and maybe Andy blew out his knee, you know, wrestling as a freshman and, mm-hmm. but they all had lives. Right. And now they're, you know, in their fifties and they're Gen X and, they are the ones actually, what did he say? The The principal said that one day they're going to be running the world. Yeah. We are. Yeah. But we are the invisible generation. That's the funny part, right? I mean, when they, a couple of years ago, they did a thing where they showed all the generations by years and they forgot to put Gen X in there, like completely left them off. Wow. And Gen X as a group is like, yeah, we kind of prefer to be a little invisible. That's how we've always been. We've kind of just faded into the background. Yeah. And I think what I appreciate um, a lot about this is like, it stops where it stops. The film stops where it stops. Instead of being like, this is what happens to John. And yeah. this is what happens to Claire. Like, and I think that's why the discussion yeah. group of what happens on Monday, yeah. right? Is We all want to believe there's some resolution. There's not. It's yeah. just it's going to be Monday. That's, what's, yeah. that's the answer. The yeah. short answer is it's going to be Monday. I just appreciate that choice so much because I think it adds so much more to this. And the, the, the hugeness of this movie when it came out, it was a quiet movie that was not a big uh, you know, superhero movie or like a horror movie or something that was splashy that would draw people. And it had such huge success. If that happened now, they 100% would have made a Breakfast Club too, right? Oh, like, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And they they didn't. It was a one-time, yeah. one-off, please do not remake The <laughs> yeah. Breakfast Club, you know? It, was, really it was perfect in its simplicity and in its lack of closure. Yeah. and um, Which is funny because I do like a movie that's got closure. I love a happy ending. Obviously. You know, I love a good European movie that has a, like, stark ending but this has no resolution and if you've lived in high school everybody's gone to high school right it's just going to be monday right and i I just wonder how like the generation now like the younger generation younger than me would react to this movie like if they watched it i feel like what i'm thinking of is if we had like a 15 or 16 year old person watch this i feel like they would be bored too much talking it's too much talking and it's in one location and there's no action and so i'm wondering like how in that way it'll age for the new generations for the like after your generation how because like I would show this to my kids yeah but like I don't know how it's going to age in that sense because I feel like movies like this they're not as popular now like no if they're they're not usually created like this where it's like one location 
dialogue between five characters, there's only six total characters throughout the whole movie. And so I'm curious to see how that, that's going to end. Well, it's interesting you said that, actually, because um, Kira's brother, Sawyer, is 16, and a group of his buddies sat down to watch Pulp Fiction, which I think we can all agree is wow. a monster movie, right? Yeah, totally. And a lot happens in Pulp Fiction, so but much. there is a lot of periods of very fast-moving, yeah. quick dialogue. Yeah. They were so bored watching the parts really? with the dialogue, and they turned it off. They were all on their it's phones. It's really fast-paced, though. It is fast-paced, but I think they... Mm. So this is now just... The next generation behind you, right? So you're talking about kids that are in high school yeah. now. They are such visual creatures and spend so much time yeah. flipping through, you know, reels and TikToks and videos and Instagram feeds and everything's a split second and gone that anything that requires real conversation or dialogue is so boring to them. And not only that, books that you guys had when you were in middle school that were hardcover history books, say, they have the same ones online now. And the picture that was a static picture in a book that you flipped a page on they can click on it in their textbook and it comes to life and is animated. Right. So it's just different, but it's it's also shortened their attention span, I think. Like, not to sound too old, but they're, things that are appealing to them are just different. And I don't know that a story that is so dialogue-focused will... I mean, if, if, it can, if Pulp Fiction can't hold their attention... You know, oh, there's yeah. no way the Breakfast Club's going like to hold their attention. That yeah, that's how they reacted. I was as well. They turned it off, and I said, "What happened?" They and they were like, it, "They didn't finish they it." Didn't finish it. Wow. And Sarah was disappointed because he's seen it and he wanted to share it. Oh, that's but, the worst. But yeah, it wasn't yeah. fast moving enough, and I'm like, "That's crazy" because it's massive action. In but there's periods of Tarantino's dialogue that's very rich dialogue, so right? It's yeah. so well done. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. Um. So one last question in regards to. The Breakfast Club is. Can you think of any movies or TV shows that have taken a page from this film that you love as well? Well, the one that you pointed out was Victorious, which was shocking to me yeah. when it happened. <laughs> but I can't think of specifically any examples of that. But um, the thing in rewatching it that resonated with me was John Bender at the time in the mid 80s, if you were kind of like a hoodlum or you were kind of the rough character, it was definitely much more in line to wear like the black leather jacket and to kind of look like a rougher version of Fonzie from Happy Days. This was like 1985 when it came out. And certainly there was guys that wore flannels and whatever, but um, Judd Nelson actually showed up for the audition dressed like that. So he kind of went to a hospice shop and picked out his stuff to make his costume and walked into audition that way and they kept it. And then actually, if you fast forward just five, six years, you know, the musicians in the grunge grunge era, that is how they dressed, right? Mm -hmm. So like Bender sort of influenced a lot of things going forward. You know, I mean, he definitely, an entire musical generation kind of looked like that with the the kind of the jeans and the flannel mm -hmm. shirts and the long sleeves underneath and the black boots. And so, but as far as movies and TV, I feel like you hear lines from it and it's yeah. it's kind of infused in pop culture. But aside from Victorious, I can't think of something. I'm sure there is. And now they've made a high school play that they're performing at different high no schools. Idea. Yeah, that was new information to me too. Yeah. So Okay, interesting. Any last thoughts about The Breakfast Club? Other than please don't remake this movie. Please don't remake the movie. I'm so glad you asked me what I thought about it. Um, I love, I just realized when I did the math while we were watching it, uh, a little Easter egg in the movie is at the very opening sequence, Carl the janitor actually appears in the trophy case as man of the year. He was sort of like big man on campus or like the, you know, the high, the high school's um, student council president for the graduating year of 1969. And so he would have likely had... Um, 
Dick, the principal, mm-hmm. as a teacher. He'd been the teacher based on the math and talking about it and listening this time. He would have had him as a teacher when he was like a six year, five or six year teacher. Yeah. And he was clearly on great things. Uh, he was on a path to great things in 1969. And he ends up the janitor, which is fine. That's good work, but probably not where he looked like he was going as a right. high school graduate. And uh, doing the math on it, he probably went to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And I was like, when I did the math on that, I was like, that's kind of a mind shift to think, to put it back to those years. So you've got Carl the janitor, who is one of the only few adults that appears and talks in the movie. And he actually went to Shermer High School, probably had the principal as a teacher when he was a young teacher. And then the two of them share a beer and he calls calls the principal on his crap, right? Like he kind of right, says, these right. kids are not going to take care of you when you get older. Right. And he's got a very different perspective, but he's not that far out of it. And he went to that high school and peaked in high school and now he's the janitor there you know so yeah yeah, there's some there's it's a very clever movie with very not a lot going on but so much is happening so much is happening yeah um and every time I watch it I see something else and so even after 50 times today I did the math on it I'm like oh that's curious timing she mentioned that to me in the middle of the movie and I was like mind blown because I'm like the regular viewer is not going to know that. Right. They, he would have been 18, no. 17, 18 yeah. in 1969. And yeah. he very likely would have gone to Vietnam if he wasn't already in college. And yeah. so he probably got That's drafted. Crazy. And crazy. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Kiermanese. Oh, I'm so, so happy fun. that you're doing this again. Me too. So, well, what are you doing next? Um, I don't know what's coming <laughs> next. You'll have to tune in and see. I thanks will for listening. Thanks for having All me. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye.